0: You are tuned into The Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of The Dr. Tina Show, I'm sitting down with the brilliant and beautiful Dr. Casey Means. Did you know that your fertility and sexual health are both very intimately tied to your metabolic health? It's true and honestly scary. Join me as I sit down with Dr. Means and we dig into some alarming statistics about fertility, sperm counts, and sexual health as they all pertain to your metabolic well-being. This one is for both the men and the ladies to listen to. Whether you're looking to start a family or simply have great sex into your later years, you need to know this info. Dr. Means is a Stanford trained physician, chief medical officer and co-founder of Metabolic Health Company Levels and associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. I adore her and her mission, and I loved every minute of this interview. So let's jump in. Hey, functional and integrative healthcare practitioners, listen up. I've got something for you. Back in the day, I used to stock an entire walls worth of lab kits for each specialty lab that I ran on patients. It took up so much room. Each kit had different instructions, and it was a very tiresome process. On top of that, I would spend forever having to chase down the lab results once they came in by logging into all the different portals and websites. It was honestly a total time suck and time is money after all. But now there's a better way to order lab tests that I'm excited to share with you. Rupa Health is a tool that lets you order from over 30 specialty labs in a single portal. You can order all the tests that you normally do from companies such as Dutch, Vibrant, Diagnostic Solutions, and more. Rupa eliminates all the headaches by having all ordering, tracking, and results in a single place, and they also handle invoices, tracking shipments, automated follow-up, personalized instructions for completing the tests, and so much more. They can even facilitate convenient blood draws for your patients. The best part about Rupa is that it's free for practitioners. Signing up only took me a few minutes and the website is very user-friendly. Plus, all of your patients' labs can be found under one single platform. Go to rupahealth.com, that's R-U-P-A health.com to join a live demo or sign up and see how it works. And if you're simply a listener looking to order your own labs, I have a selection of tests at nearly wholesale prices that you can check out on my website at drtina.com forward slash labs. Dr. Casey Means, thank you so much for making time to be on the Dr. Tina show. We tried to do this last week and I fouled and didn't get it recorded. So you were kind enough to come back for a second round. And I really appreciate you being
1: here today. I am so glad to be here for round two. And as I told you before the episode, the chance to get to chat with you two times within the course of a week is such a privilege. So I'm thrilled. Awesome. It was like a cocktail hour, except we were
0: podcasting. (laughs) I'm sure there's some gold in those hills and we'll extract some of it and make something, but I, this is, this is going to be a great episode. So I really wanted to bring you on and talk about fertility and sexual health and metabolism, because as you just said off air, this is a bit of a dumpster fire and people have no idea what is going on. And I think it's important that we break this down. It's a tough topic and it, this is, there's going to be a lot of truth bombs in here, but I'm excited to dive in.
1: Me too. I, I mean, I really feel like there almost could not be a more important topic when you when you're speaking about the propagation of a species and whether we are or not able to reproduce ourselves. It's it's sort of a first order issue, and uh, there's a lot happening in this space, and that I'm so excited for us to talk about. But um, it's it's one that I think people really need to be aware of because a lot's happening.
0: You know, when I was a younger lad or woman, uh, not a lad, <laughs> when I was a younger lady, um, I remember seeing a lot of infertility come through my mentor's practice and the this was in the 90s and the first thing he would always do is basically get them metabolically sound because they would it was presenting a lot as inability to get pregnant but more importantly miscarriages which you know can be thyroid related and other hormones but the root cause of all of that really was metabolic health and so i was seeing this really early on and it's a conversation if you dive into the data it's kind of terrifying. And so we're going to try to do our best to break this down, but let's start with fertility, which for everyone listening who isn't interested in fertility, hang on because you need to hear about this if you are interested in having a good sex life. So fertility, what's going on? What's the link between fertility and metabolism here?
1: Yeah. So I think the highest level framing I would say is that you know when we talk about metabolism, we're talking about how the body essentially converts food to cellular energy to power every chemical reaction in our entire body and this will be familiar to your audience because you talk about metabolism so much but i think that's the big picture thing to like put in mind is that you know 93% of american adults have metabolic dysfunction metabolism is how we convert food energy to cellular energy and everything that we do in our bodies every all the trillions upon trillions of chemical reactions happening every second require this cellular energy and our bodies right now in the western world are essentially broken in that process and it's the root cause of every major chronic disease and symptom that we're dealing with in America today now when you look at fertility and pregnancy or you know pregnancy and and conceiving and making a human that is a hugely energy intensive process like one of the most you know every month just ovulating is a huge energetic process our ovarian cells have some of the most mitochondrial density of any tissue in our body and then you think about if there is a you know conception and pregnancy a woman is building an entire new organ with a placenta and building a human. And so this is hugely energy intensive. So if we have a problem with making energy, we're going to have problems with a successful pregnancy. And so that is really, I think, the high level link there is like we need good energy production in ourselves to be able to have um, to to, to take on this huge process uh, of building a human 3D printing life. So, it's no surprise really that we're seeing these wild fertility statistics, um, coinciding lock in lockstep with our increasing metabolic epidemic. And when you look at some of the stats, so, and it's hard to measure some of these things, right? Cause like we're looking over long periods of time and how do you exactly measure fertility? How do you exactly measure these things? Um, but generally speaking, we'll talk about what evidence is out there in the published literature. So research suggests that infertility rates are up 15% since 1900, which correlates to about a 0.37% increase per year of infertility. So you just think about that for two seconds, like extrapolate that out, that each year, the ability to have a successful conception and pregnancy is getting worse. That's a huge, huge problem. And and 0.37% might seem low, but when you, when you when you when you sort of like let that curve go into the future um, it gets really scary to think about um one of the things I think about a lot is like wow if the body is so underpowered that it's basically shutting down the ability to to do this like what is that saying about our lifestyle and our environment right now um, that it's like essentially unsafe in, in a, on a cellular level for the production of life so there's many reasons why the metabolic link, you know, why this is showing up. One is very much related to women and one is really related to men. In terms of women, a big factor of why this is happening is infertility due to polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, which is one of the leading, if not the leading cause of infertility in women in the United States and starting to be globally. Research suggests that about at least 12% of American women are dealing with PCOS. Some stats in some papers, it's up to like 26% globally. It's a huge, huge number. And PCOS is fundamentally completely interlinked with metabolic dysfunction. So much so that the NIH actually tried to change the name of PCOS to metabolic reproductive syndrome in 2012, but it never happened, which is really, really interesting. A much more, I think, like accurate name, because of course, polycystic ovarian syndrome, like it's really focused on this like cystic architecture that can happen in the ovaries. Um, But it almost like the name almost distracts us to what the physiology actually is, which is fundamentally rooted in insulin resistance. So women with PCOS often have hyperinsulinemia, high insulin levels, which is of course characteristic of insulin resistance where the cells essentially block the signal of insulin. And then the body revs up with more insulin production and this high insulin can actually stimulate the fecal cells of the ovaries to produce more testosterone. And so you basically end up having this like problem with the delicate balance of estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, progesterone, all those sex hormones that have to be in sort of like this perfect concert and harmony for ovulation and fertility to happen. And this seems to be disturbed in part due to this hyperinsulinemia in, in PCOS, and and some of the, the co- sort of comorbidities of this disease are, are profound, like 80% of people with PCOS are dealing with obesity. And 50% of women by the age of 40, if they have PCOS, will develop type 2 diabetes. 50%. Nationally, that is about 13, a little over 13% for type 2 diabetes over the course of you know, adult lifetime. So that's a much higher number, obviously, 50%. So there's this really close relation with metabolic syndrome and metabolic dysfunction. Um, And then there's the male side, which is essentially that sperm quality and sperm count are just going down precipitously. Research suggests that sperm count is down 50% over the past hundred years or so which you'd think would be considered a public health emergency, but we're just not talking about it. It's mind, it's mind blowing. Like it's mind
0: blowing. And people, I joke that humans are going extinct and nobody thinks they think I'm joking. I'm like, I, I don't know how to say that nicely. This is 50
1: percent. 50 percent decrease in sperm count. Yep. And It gets really bad when you start looking at, you start substratifying that by different levels of metabolic health. So for men who are dealing with obesity, research out of Harvard shows that they have a 42% higher chance of having low sperm count than people of normal, healthy weight. And an 81% higher chance of having zero sperm in their semen compared to people of normal weight. So 81% higher chance of having azospermia, no sperm, if they are dealing with obesity compared to healthy weight men. And there's so many mechanisms for this that are so interesting. A big one being that fat tissue is an endocrine organ. It is a hormonal organ, which we don't think about, especially that visceral, metabolically unhealthy fat. Dr. Ben Bickman, who wrote Why We Get Sick, literally calls the fat around the middle in men a giant ovary because it can convert testosterone to estrogen. So you've got men who have this ovary around their gut from our diet and lifestyle, and it's essentially converting their testosterone to what we'd consider more of a female hormone. Men, obviously, they need estrogen as well, but not that much. And in doing so, this totally impairs spermatogenesis and the ability of sperm to be produced. Um, you, you look at um, so many other elements of metabolic dysfunction, like high blood sugar levels alone. So separate from the visceral fat, just the high blood sugar levels alone, we know that creates increased free radicals and oxidative stress. And the testes and all that machinery that makes sperm are really sensitive to oxidative stress. Like these are fairly delicate cells. There's a lot of them they are being produced regularly. And so things that are like all these reactive unpaired electrons, it's going to damage sperm. And so oxidative damage in sperm, which is related to metabolic dysfunction and high glucose levels, you're basically just hurting these cells. And I just, um, so you've got low testosterone, you've got reactive oxygen species hurting the sperm. You've got insulin resistance in the brain that's actually screwing up the central mechanism of sex hormone um, production, the whole like hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis. Um, there's several different ways in which um, our metabolic dysfunction is hurting sperm. But so you've got women with PCOS, you've got men with decreased quality and quantity of sperm, diabetic men. Um, and women having even much reduced in vitro fertilization outcomes. And that's just fertility. Like, we, like we, we can go into talking about actual pregnancy outcomes if you do get pregnant, which are much worse if you're dealing with metabolic dysfunction, high blood sugar. But that's like a broad overview of the landscape in men and women. And together, this is leading to a metabolic fertility crisis that we absolutely can get our way out of with improved diet and lifestyle and public health strategies and individual choices but we have to name the issue and talk about it openly if we're going to make progress.
0: Yes, it is uh it's been go- the reason I brought up my past experience with my mentors cuz it's been going on that long. Like this is this has been going on readily to the eye of anyone looking since at least the mid 90s, early to mid 90s. And this has been an issue. And it's just been sort of like, you know, brushed under the carpet and then comes along this health at every size hypothesis, which is, I believe, a bogus hypothesis. And it's really exacerbating the problem because we're trying to glorify a disease state that is leading to the decline of our species. I mean, This isn't about whether you love yourself at whatever size you're at. This is quite literally your metabolic health. Let's back up for a second to PCOS. Something that happens often for me, probably for you too, on the social media world is I will start talking about hormones and then everybody chimes in and says, talk about PCOS, talk about PCOS, talk about PCOS. And I'm like, it's literally the same thing. It's just metabolic dysfunction. Like it is metabolic dysfunction. And yes, I do think, and you might know the literature better, but from what I understand, So my daughter, we diagnosed her at six years old with the beginning signs of PCOS. So there is definitely a component of my health status when I was pregnant with her or even prior, I'm sure. So that experience and then through the breastfeeding definitely set her up, I believe, for problems later on. And so this is something she battles. And a lot of young women I see in clinic were battling this as well. But this at, at its root core, regardless of whether you got a bad set of cards dealt to you, whether that's genetics, epigenetics, just, you know, the environmental milieu when you were in utero, whatever that may be. Right now, what we're dealing with and what I keep trying to harp on my daughter is like, this is metabolic dysfunction. And so the same things stand, the strength training, the sleep, the eating, you know, hitting your protein macros, getting sunlight, mitigating your stress, like all of those things still stand. What do you say when people say, what about PCOS? It's like, what is it? You know, why why does it why is it considered a mystery to these women? Why aren't they being told it's just metabolic syndrome?
1: I mean, I think it's 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 this what we know. It's the healthcare system. You know, it's it's this culture of not focusing on the root causes and just focusing on symptom management and reactivity, and just a complete blind spot to the metabolic framework of systems biology and network biology, it's like, this is how our system is designed. We're designed to manage rather than cure. And so unfortunately that I think really just plays into, um, what's happening with PCOS is that, you know, the, the OBGYNs are just literally not trained or, or the family medicine doctors to think about the cellular dysfunction that's happening. They're thinking about, you know, how to, how to, get a patient on metformin to manage blood sugar levels or how to change their hormones with exogenous hormones to kind of get those right without looking at like what is really happening in the cell. So I think that's the reason why we're missing this, but, but women are so amazing because women dig and they do not really accept, I think like face value of like, there's nothing we can do, or you're going to have this for life. I love the way women, especially like ages 30 to 55 or so are just like, the most hungry for good information, and so they're 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 figuring this out, uh, and I think they're going to change the system by demanding more from their doctors. But again, it's like metabolic reproductive system is reproductive syndrome is really the way we should be thinking about it. And even though there are many many um, uh, f- thoughts about what some of the physiology in terms of like you know, you mentioned your daughter at six had some signs there. There seems to be a large like genetic component to PCOS or some sort of like polygenic mix. It's really not well understood, but that has something to do with the metabolic system. So people are kind of like primed to be insulin resistant, whether it has to do with the insulin receptor, having some type of problem or, or what, or whatnot. Um, But there's also so much research to show that the dietary and lifestyle Uh, interventions that impact the insulin resistance pathway are extremely effective for women with PCOS. And so no matter whether it's mostly a genetic driver or not, the behavioral side of things can be profoundly effective. There was a study, um, I believe in about 2021, that looked at, this is just one example of many papers like this, but it took a group of women with PCOS and very perturbed hormonal and metabolic biomarkers and put them on a very, um, structured 12 week dietary intervention. This dietary intervention was focused on a very high quality whole foods Mediterranean diet that was quite low glycemic. So, but not restrictive, unlimited leafy greens and like, uh, low glycemic plant foods, a moderate amount of, very high quality like fish and some poultry, um, limited fruits, like low glycemic, I believe no grains. And then they added like a polyphenol supplement for like sort of the antioxidant component. And in 12 weeks, the study participants lost an average of 20 pounds and had... Very statistically significant improvements in hormonal markers and metabolic markers, insulin sensitivity markers over the course of just twelve weeks. So this was a really like blood sugar focused intervention, whole foods, getting rid of the the crap, and it it really helped. And there's many many studies to support different variations of essentially dietary interventions that focus on improving insulin sensitivity, and so that's very hopeful. Uh, and, and I think that. Um, you know, as this research, more of it comes out and hopefully makes it into education that that diet will be first line for many practitioners in counseling their patients. Hopefully, there's also definitely a movement that I'm seeing just from the levels standpoint um, of women really being interested in using continuous glucose monitoring with PCOS so that they can understand which specific foods for their body are causing the biggest glucose responses. Because, you know, they're probably getting like a generic handout from their doctor saying like, eat healthy and move, you know, and they're like, okay, that's great. But I've been hearing so much about how like diet is individualized and some of the foods that might be quote unquote healthy on the box actually really impact blood sugar. And so if my goal is to keep blood sugar stable and keep insulin down, like I need a tool to help me do that. And that tool exists. It's a continuous glucose monitor. You know, you can also use a finger prick glucometer, but we get hordes of women with polycystic ovarian syndrome coming to Levels to seek out access to a continuous glucose monitor because their OBGYN, our family medicine doctor, has said, You don't need a continuous glucose monitor. You're 35 years old, like, and you don't have fluorid type 2 diabetes, but they very well might have insulin resistance, but not actually meet diagnostic criteria for full blown diabetes yet. And so their doctor essentially denies them access to this tool. So that's been a really interesting trend to see. Um, and, and, and anecdotally, some really you know, great outcomes. Certainly, no like research yet that we've published about any outcomes with that. It's not a treatment tool. We're, we're a wellness company, but it's interesting to see how people are seeking this out because they're they're reading they're meet they're meeting roadblocks in standard clinical practice.
0: Absolutely, but like hands down best tool. I mean, I have one on me. <laughs> I, it's, I'm it's such a wonderful tool, and it's you're right. So they get told they there's nothing they can do. I mean, this is the Basic scenario for most young women who, and which is a lot of women. I mean, I, you gave a really low statistic, but what I saw clinically was crazy. I mean, some glimmer of PCOS in most women, quite honestly, when I would get down to the you know hormonal testing on everybody. So some glimmer. I had it. I was diagnosed with it as a young woman. I still was able to get pregnant. I was a complete ultra refined carb addict for. Decades before I got pregnant. My mom was not the healthiest person when she was pregnant with me. I mean, so that, yeah, like you said, some polygenetic, there's something happening there that is being, you know, shared along the way. But they get told, you know, eat, eat better and exercise. This may cause infertility. It's going to, here's your spironolactone to block your testosterone and your androgen. So you're probably going to actually gain more weight because now your testosterone's in the toilet. And here's the birth control pill. And this is, and then these women come to me and they're like, okay, so I want to go off the birth control and get pill and get pregnant. And I'm like, oh, geez, like the, what a, What a handful you've been given the past however many years, you know? And it's just, it's really frustrating. And I can imagine angering for them. And then when I try to explain it as simply as, okay, so it's metabolic dysfunction at its core. We have to balance your blood sugar and we have to get your insulin resistance in check. They almost get mad at me. It's like a shoot the messenger kind of phenomenon where they're like, it can't be that simple. I have been going through hell. I've been dealing with cystic acne and hair growth and all these. And I'm like, I know. But at its root, the tools we have are to balance your blood sugar. I can't turn back the time and, you know, reset your eggs or your mom's eggs or your, whatever. Like I can't fix that. But you, at this point, we have to deal with that, build the muscle, do all the things, right? The things you and I talk about all the time and, and and uh, you know, keep tabs on what your blood sugar is doing consistently because, you know, at least for me, I try to do it quarterly at the very least. I slap one of these CGMs on and Take a look at what's happening. Um, if even to get a baseline, what an average glucose like? What are people running average? People are running in the like the one tens, one fifteens, one twenties, and not really even knowing it. And these are people who are eating fairly carnivore and fairly active, and it's frustrating for them because they have to do a little something extra. Because for some, I I say their metabolism is busted to some degree, and. It's a tough one because the longer you live with a busted metabolism, the harder it seems to get back in check, right? It, it's a little bit more of an uphill battle for folks. So where I explain this because I I understand these people's frustration and the system is not helpful. The The allopathic system at large is really not doing a lot of it. Even my naturopathic profession, they all called me crazy for running serum insulins on everybody. Back in you know the early 2000s, I was like, Serum insulin fasting, you know, hemoglobin A one C, because this is what how my mentor taught me, and they were like, "You're crazy. Why are you so convinced everybody has prediabetes?" I'm like, "Because everybody does, or they will." <laughs> like
1: that's that's it. Everybody does, or they will. Yep. It's it's it is the majority of Americans now. It is over 50% of American adults, as as we know, have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. It is more likely than not, as an American adult, you will have these almost universally preventable conditions. And so, yeah, I mean, it can seem almost like a conspiracy theory of like, oh my God, everyone has this, you know, like, but it's like the numbers are so high, you know, and so many of that remaining 50%, who don't actually meet diagnostic criteria for prediabetes or type two diabetes, of course, are on the spectrum towards it with, you know, subclinical. Well, probably not even subclinical. They probably have something going on that that we could point to, but like insulin resistance, higher insulin levels, but their glucose levels haven't flipped into the diagnostic range for prediabetes or type two diabetes. And so, you know, then you get up to these stats of like 93% of American adults have at least one biomarker of metabolic dysfunction and, it's, it gets pretty wild. And so, um, yeah, no, I think it can seem like, oh, it's too good to be true. It's this simple, but, but there's really, what I often think about is like, there is literally no problem we are dealing with in health, mental or physical health in the United States, where balancing your blood sugar and getting your insulin levels under better control is not going to help in some way. It might not fix or cure the issue, but there's almost no issue that we're dealing with in a large way in the US right now with mental or physical health, where better blood sugar control and better insulin levels, which are in our control, would not greatly improve the condition. And of course, that ranges from everything from gout, depression, anxiety, infertility, or dysfunction, cancer, stroke, heart disease, fatty liver disease, retinopathy, like cancer go on and on and on. And like, on. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So
0: Yeah. I've been a low-carb gal for a long time, and I'm embarrassed to admit that I've only recently learned in the past few years that all low-carb folks should know— is how critically important electrolytes are to supplement. Electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. Common issues like headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, sleeplessness may simply be a lack of electrolytes. Adequate electrolyte intake can boost performance and recovery in the gym as well. And most importantly, they support the low-carb lifestyle that many of us follow. My new favorite electrolyte product is by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. This means a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Simply adding a daily packet of Element into my routine has given me more energy, less cramping, and improved mood overall. I even think it's helping my sleep. I've teamed up with Element and they've been gracious enough to offer a free gift with purchase to listeners of The Dr. Tina Show. The free gift Element sample pack includes one packet of every flavor. This is the perfect gift for anyone who's interested in trying all of their flavors. My favorite is the raspberry salt. They offer a no questions asked refund on all orders. So if you don't like it, you don't even have to send it back. This offer is exclusively available to Dr. Tina Show listeners. So be sure to use the link in the show notes and take advantage of it now head to the link drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Tina. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Tina. Do you feel stuck in a rut? Is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Is stress becoming overwhelming? Regardless of if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this zany world and is having a hard time navigating it all, Therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. That's why I'm excited to partner with BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and accessible. And this is an important mission because finding a therapist can be really hard and time consuming, especially if you're limited to the options in your local area. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few quick questions, BetterHelp can match you to a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist via the link in my show notes. That's betterhelp.com forward slash Dr. Tina. Listeners of the Dr. Tina show get 10% off the first month of BetterHelp so you can connect with a therapist and see if it works for you. And because finding a therapist is a little bit like dating, if you don't fit well with the first one, which is not unheard of, you can easily switch to a new one with no additional cost without stressing over insurance or who's in network, et cetera. I used to think therapy was only for people with big issues, but I've come to realize that we all could use a little help now and then. We are living in unprecedented times, and I found that having someone objective to talk to is hugely beneficial when it comes to managing my stress load. An outside perspective is often all it takes for me to process my emotions in a more healthy way, which ultimately leads to more success in all areas of my life, including my relationships with others. Click on the link in the show notes now to visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Dr. Tina. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash D-R-T-Y-N-A. Yeah, because the end of that journey is tumors that like to grow. Like that's what people are not... I just had Dr. Nathan Goodyear on and he was like, yeah, I mean that that was the conversation was metabolic dysfunction is driving staggering cancer rates. So for people who are not interested in fertility right now listening to this program, let's think about the future of like we don't, you know, I I I commented on somebody's post the other day they were saying, you know, lift weights to and it was like a list of all these bonuses and I'm like, I just want my latter years to not suck. <laughs> Like I just want my, I just want my health and my body to not suck as I get older. I mean, that's one of the, it it, it really, for me, strength training is just to create a bigger mop on my body to suck up that glucose and that insulin and do something productive with it versus, you know, just swim in it and have it. It's pro-grow. Like you, you mentioned this in a great blog post, but that's how I always describe it too, is like insulin's pro-grow. And we can use that to our benefit through strength training, through building muscle, or we can let it really wreak havoc on our cellular system.
1: And the growth thing, I think, also fits into the fertility conversation. So interestingly, I don't know if you're up for this, like shifting gears to to just mentioning about the fetal macrosomia issue, you know, like babies are obviously, you're growing a baby over the course of nine months. And something that increased rates of that we're seeing is this concept of fetal macrosomia, which is essentially like babies who are larger than they should be. Um, fetal bay means baby macro big somia body. So big body babies. And I was one of these babies. I was 11 pounds, nine ounces. And interestingly, it doesn't seem that insulin actually crosses the placenta, uh, but glucose crosses the placenta. And so it, there's, there's proposed mechanisms that part of the physiology of fetal macrosomia is you know, metabolic dysfunction in the mother with high insulin levels and high glucose levels. And that glucose essentially creating insulin resistance in the baby, increasing insulin resistance in the baby, which then causes them to essentially grow bigger, which is really fascinating. And so, um, and babies born with fetal macrosomia, which is defined as um, being larger than eight pounds, 13 ounces, um, that portends, much higher rates of metabolic issues in the child, so like obesity and type two diabetes in the future. Um, which then I I actually went on to deal with obesity as a child, and so and a lot of like associated symptoms, like peer, you know painful periods and cystic acne and anxiety as a as a young person. And and once I lost the weight in my teen years and kind of got metabolically healthier, that of course like all faded into the background. And so um, so you've got this interesting perfect storm of like a lot of mothers who are going into pregnancy with metabolic dysfunction, many who don't know they have it. You know, almost 90% of people in the US with prediabetes don't know they have it. That's 90 million people of those, 80 to 90% don't know they have it. So you've got a lot of people going into pregnancy with with undiagnosed metabolic dysfunction. You've got large, you know, fetal macrosomic babies who are going to be set up for, Worse metabolic outcomes. You then have the culture of really high rates of C-section in our country, which of course changes the microbiome transfer to the baby. We've got, um, you know, a lot of politicization of of breastfeeding. Breastfeeding like unquestionably improves metabolic health for the baby through like the transfer of oligosaccharides and building the microbiome for the baby. Um, And so you've got, you know, like lower breastfeeding rates, higher C-section rates, microbiome issues in the baby insulin resistance in the baby when they're being born. It's just like a, we're literally starting day one with kind of like a culture that creates a perfect storm um, of issues that are going to lead to metabolic dysfunction. Couple that with the fact that we are just, we I think we over medicate um, on the, on the infectious disease standpoint with like just copious antibiotics in children, um, which then of course hurts the microbiome more. And so it's just this, it's just fascinating to think that like from day one, we're kind of dealing with this. I was probably on, 30 rounds of antibiotics when i was a kid for ear infections and strep which of course then worsened my chances of having metabolic issues. So, so that's an interesting one with like the growth concept of like we're basically growing big babies and frankly, you know, i'm i'm heading into those years of my life of wanting to have children and i think a lot from a motivation standpoint about like one of the reasons i want like selfishly, not just for the baby but for myself, i want to keep my insulin levels down and keep my glucose levels stable because it's going to be harder to get out a big baby, you know? And like, I want a healthy sized baby. You know, we, I think we celebrate like bigger is better. And actually my mom was celebrated at the hospital in DC for having this huge baby. It was literally celebrated. And what's crazy is that for moms who have fetal macrosomic babies or moms that have gestational diabetes, they are at much higher risk as well for having metabolic problems in the future. And so my mom went on to die of metabolic disease and What pre way prematurely. And I just have a real sense of disappointment that when she was 40, no one said to her at that time, hey, you know, your blood sugar levels were high in pregnancy. You had a lot of trouble losing the baby weight. Your baby was really large. There's something going on here in your body. Your body's telling you that there's insulin resistance here, which is going to lead to problems down the road. And like, we need to dig into this. Of course, no one said that. Instead, they let her, you know, get into her fifties and get the high cholesterol and get the high blood pressure and get the prediabetes and she had a medication for each and she was super compliant and she very much tried her best. Like she was always reading health books when I was growing up. She worked with a personal trainer, but there was no real framework for like what she really was attacking, which was to improve her mitochondrial health her metabolic health. And I think if all the vectors and all the doctors had been talking to her about like, this is the problem in your cells and your body, and this is what you need to do. She absolutely would have followed the path towards getting out of that. But of course, in our system, every doctor is incentivized to kind of keep the pieces pulled apart, like, like as if none of them relate and then sort of like treat, manage, drug each of them you know, in all the different specialist office, which is of course how we generate revenue in healthcare is, is doing as much volume as possible. And so you get people who essentially have these warning signs that might be showing up in their young fertile years that are basically little red flags that are going to turn into much bigger red flags down the road. But like, we need to be looking at them for what they are, which is essentially this signal that there is something going wrong metabolically and there's something we can do about it. So um, yeah, it's just, it's just a fascinating landscape.
0: The gestational diabetes part, that's always fascinated me because when I was pregnant back in 1999, you know, I had my daughter in 2000, gestational diabetes wasn't really well understood. And my mentor was telling me, he's like, that's, those people are metabolically unsound. That's they went into this metabolically unsound and it's presenting as gestation. It's a gestational does diabetes doesn't just happen, was what he was trying to get at. It was like, there is some milieu here, some metabolic dysfunction milieu, and it's presenting itself in these pregnancies as gestational diabetes. And I feel like it's still kind of this like, oh, well, you got it, bed rest, let's you know, there's not a lot of guidance for these women. They're just, told, and every woman I've talked to is like, I have no idea why I got gestational diabetes. Like, I don't know what happened. I just, one day I had it. And some of these women are thin. Some of them are overweight, you know, all varieties of ages and sizes. And they're like, oh, I just got gestational diabetes and that's fat. And thankfully the baby came out. Sometimes things didn't go well. Sometimes things went sideways. But what do you say to that? Like, why is this treated like some pop-up event <laughs> You know that just came out of seemingly nowhere? I, I feel like that's not
1: the case at all. I think it's because we don't check insulin levels routinely. So we don't actually know, like a woman with, who gets gestational diabetes may have had quote-unquote normal blood sugar levels before pregnancy. So ostensibly is quote-unquote normal and healthy. But of course, if we were checking insulin levels, which we know can change 10, 15 years before blood sugar changes, which we don't test, which is the earlier, potentially earliest um, biomarker we can test for metabolic dysfunction, we might actually be able to re-characterize a lot of these women who go into pregnancy, quote unquote, healthy as having early metabolic dysfunction, but we just don't know because we don't test the early biomarker. So I think that's part of it. Um, I also think it's probably that some of these women actually were pre-diabetic before pregnancy, but they just weren't picked up because if like that stat 89% of people with prediabetes don't know they have it. And there was this like wild, um, study that was out of the, um, United States preventative service task force. They did some research showing that they looked at, <laughs> they looked at 21,000 patients who were eligible for pre-diabetes screening. And of those, the percentage who actually got diabetes screening was very, very low. And then of the people who got screening of those who were eligible, the people who showed up for, with prediabetes, zero out of 21,000 people in the study got appropriate prediabetes treatment. So we are just like abjectly failing as a country and a healthcare system in both identifying screening for prediabetes, then identifying prediabetes, and then treating prediabetes. So I don't really know what to make of that, of the like, sort of like this thing of like, wow, yeah, like this just pops up in pregnancy. It's like, we, we probably don't have a good baseline for understanding what they were like before pregnancy. But we do know that of people who um, have gestational diabetes about 50% of the women who have gestational diabetes will go on to develop type 2 diabetes. So it's like clearly there's some sort of just like big ramp up risk that happens. And I think the mechanisms of that are not totally clear because obviously like pregnancy is an insulin resistant state. That is a fact is that physiologically we become more insulin resistant during pregnancy. And that's just part of like Channeling resources towards the fetus, so there is this thing that's naturally happening that kind of pushes us into insulin resistance. But then, of course, if you're starting on a challenged foundation, that's going to potentially tip you over into worse function. So, so it's really interesting. Um, but I think this is another thing we're seeing a lot with people coming to levels. You know, we survey people when they come to the website and when they start going through the consultation project pro, uh, process of like, what are you interested in? And we're starting to see I think, more and more people who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant who are essentially seeking out continuous glucose monitoring. Because again, they're going to their doctor. The doctor is saying, you know, oh, maybe you know, watch your glucose, or like we can put you on some medication, or this and that for for glucose management during pregnancy. And they're like, there's got to be a better way, like for me to figure out what I should be eating and what I shouldn't for basically more stable blood sugar levels during pregnancy, and also to just understand where they're at. Like, you, there's this glu- oral glucose tolerance test that people take for the gestational diabetes test in pregnancy, and I, I forget which week it is. You probably know, but like from from. Week zero to that week, we're basically in the dark about what's happening. And I think a lot of women really want to have more control over that process um, and set themselves up for success. And so I really hope that um, eventually these hardware companies that are making the CGMs... I mean, right now, CGMs, are continuous glucose monitors, aren't FDA-approved for people with gestational diabetes or for non-diet people without diabetes to be basically to be used as this like really helpful biofeedback tool to like shape your diet and lifestyle. So those are all basically off-label prescriptions, which is just wild to me. Um, So yeah, I think there's so much opportunity with gestational diabetes uh, care to basically just for us to do so, so, so much better. um, And to also identify women who probably need to take a really rigorous approach post-pregnancy to To get blood sugar and insulin under control.
0: Yes, because the markers that we use as physicians to diagnose metabolic syndrome, you've kind of got to be in a bad place by the time all those become positive. You know, you need three out of the five markers. And I for anyone listening, I have a guide. You guys can go download, I'll link it in the show notes to see what those marker to see what those uh, you know, assess it at home. But that that's pretty far along. Those folks are pretty far along at that point. And what I've seen clinically is that folks will show up with a selection, a little ding, 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 just little glimmers of metabolic dysfunction. It's not real clear cut. Their hemoglobin A1C may actually be perfect. Their fasting insulin might be creeping up a little bit. Their blood sugar, I'm sorry, their blood pressure might be a little bit elevated here and there. Like they might have a few things going on. Maybe there's a little bit of waist circumference, girth happening, a little bit of a tire around the midsection. But then I slap a CGM on them and lordy, do I get a whole lot of information <laughs> that didn't wasn't there before, you know, and... So that's the thing, I think, especially for younger women getting pregnant. And then we can't discount the male's contribution to this because metabolic syndrome, sperm can't be great, like you just mentioned, you know? So we've got these young women who, homeostasis is still working, is my point, with a lot of younger women. Homeostasis is still doing its thing because the body is miraculous. And so it's maintaining. And so to the untrained doctor's eye, they're not really seeing it. They're just kind of like, oh, you're fine. This marker, like they're trained to think in very small boxes. And if those don't light up, then you're good. And it's like, no, this person's just creeping on the edge. And that creep, what I've seen clinically, it goes on a long time until there's an event, there's something, you know, big and screaming. And they're like, why didn't anyone tell me? It's like, well, if I could have your last 10 years of labs, I could show you. It was there.
1: Yes. I think about this all the time with like the way a standard doctor visit is, is that they pull up the computer and there's the labs and, you know, Most of the labs might be green because of course the ranges that we say are normal in modern healthcare are maybe they're normal, but they're certainly not showing you what optimal is for optimal health. So you might have all these green check marks, a few orange check marks, borderline, and then maybe one or two red check marks. And the doctor's like, oh, we need to keep an eye on these red ones, but otherwise things are looking good. But like you said, to a nuanced, trained, metabolically focused eye, you can read the tea leaves of the patterns. And it's so obvious, you know, and and I'm sure this is in your guide and we have a lot of resources on the Levels blog. There's an amazing blog post called The Ultimate Guide to Understanding Your Cholesterol Levels, which is basically how to use a standard cholesterol panel to read the tea leaves of whether there might be some metabolic dysfunction brewing, like a higher than optimal triglyceride level, coupled with a borderline hemoglobin A1C, plus fasting glucose is in the you know creeping up plus triglyceride to HDL ratio is getting a little bit high. And then of course, if you can add on a fasting insulin or uric acid or an APOB um, or any of these like slightly more specialized tests, you can really start to see it. But even with the standard panel, if you're looking in the right way, you can mm-hmm. see some of the, and then of course pair that with some of the clinical elements as well like the belly fat or the acne or the anxiety or this and that, infertility, period irregularity, bad pms some of these like subtle things we see in younger people it's like this is clear you know and 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 um it can come as a real surprise to people because these are often the people whose doctor have routinely told them over and over that nothing is is wrong and i think it's just purely because we're not looking through a metabolic lens because that hasn't been the system that we've had we're a highly specialized medical system that's reactive where we have 42 subspecialties and the incentives are not aligned with looking at root causes and connections. They're, they're incentivized towards separation. So,
0: Yep. Yep. No, that's all really great information. Um, okay. So let's shift this into sexual health because I am about to turn 50. My husband's 50. And I read a very sobering fact the other day, or it was a statistic. I don't know how accurate it was, but it was saying that Folks my age are having sex once a month. I was like, what is going on? I, and I just, I want to preface this because I, I love being intimate with my husband and we do that often. And I will say that being in good shape helps tremendously. Like sex has gotten way, way, way more fun since. I got in really good shape. Like it's it's an athletic, well, it's an athletic event, you know? Otherwise you're just, it's like if you're fit, you can actually, it's fun. It's just more fun. So I say this to, I remember my Pilates instructor, I had a really horrific back injury when I was in medical school and I was really skinny and I was really like, I had metabolic syndrome and I was just skin and bones and I thought I was going to shatter if I fell over, you know, it was just a mess. And so I started Pilates because my back was a disaster. And she kept saying, she's like, your libido's going to kick on and it's going to be so much more fun. And your pelvic floor is going to tighten up and everything's going to get better. And I was like, that's how she motivated me <laughs> to keep going. She's <laughs> a promise of great sex. And I was like, all right. So anyway, it's true. It happens. And I've talked to my friends who are in good shape and they all have really healthy, happy sex lives. And my friends who are not in great shape are miserable and have pretty non-existent sex lives. So there's something is there, right? It's not just physicality and muscle mass, but it, I heard, I've heard you talk about this before. A lot of this comes down to metabolic health. So
1: there's my intro. <laughs> Run with it. Well, first of all, I'm just so happy for you. Oh my God. Thriving. Um, and yeah, there's a huge connection. And... I think it really comes down to like four things when you think about sexual function uh, that relate to metabolism. And it really comes down to energy levels, blood flow to our sexual organs, hormones and hormone balance, and then mood and basically like psychological well being. And so all four of those things energy, blood flow, hormones, and mood are directly linked to metabolic health. And so if metabolic health is poor on every level, it's gonna be really hard to gear up on a biologic and psychological level for healthy sexual interaction. And the numbers are really sobering, sobering, like you mentioned about sexual dysfunction in our country. Uh, When you you look at the numbers, about uh, 40% of women of reproductive age Report some element of sexual dysfunction. So this could be desire, orgasm, lubrication. Postmenopausally, that number goes up to eighty-five percent. Oh, yeah. So we're talking like second half of life for many. Oh, That's a no. lot of time to have, you know, dysfunction in this like very key primal part of life for men over 50%, around 52% of men over the age of 40 have sexual dysfunction, which could have to do with desire, orgasm, or for men, erectile dysfunction. So difficulty getting or maintaining an erection. So these are like gigantic numbers. And when we're talking about like basically over 50, it's well over half the population for for both men and women, which of course then gets into like a much bigger sort of like vitality, life force, you know, primal connection, um, conversation around like, what does that, what does that mean about our populations? Just like general well-being on the steep primal level. And so, and then, and of course links to metabolic dysfunction for a lot of reasons. We know that, um, there's, there's a, there's a couple just interesting little factoids I'll mention. Like one is that, um, there's been rat studies that basically show that, like we know that high blood sugar, which is of course characteristic of type two diabetes and many forms of metabolic dysfunction. um, If you um, basically take rats with diabetes, you induce diabetes, it will reduce the blood flow to the, the nerves that control their erections by like 50%, just decrease the blood flow by 50%. So you get nerves that are getting decreased blood flow by half, that's gonna have a big problem. With erectile dysfunction. They also know that insulin resistance in the brain actually has a is a key factor in the whole nitric oxide pathway. So nitric oxide is, of course, that chemical that helps dilate our blood vessels. And for both men and women, it's dilation of blood vessels in either the clitoris and the, the genital region or in the penis that are gonna lead to that tumescence, that filling of blood that leads to like essentially that erectile tissue being primed and ready for sexual activity. And insulin resistance in the brain is blocking some of that nitric oxide ability to function and work. And on the vascular level throughout the body is impairing nitric oxide synthesis. So you're essentially getting like lack of blood flow to both the nerves and just the general tissue that's supposed to engorge. Um, Nitric oxide also has a relationship with like vaginal wall relaxation in women. Um, And so you've got just this this issue with blood flow um, is totally totally going to be changed in people with um, with blood sugar issues. Twice as many women with type two diabetes experience sexual dysfunction than women without type two diabetes. So this is ultra motivating, and there's many doctors um, who who feel from like their clinical experience that. Um, erectile dysfunction in men actually might be one of the earliest clinical signs of insulin resistance. It's so, 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 so common. Dr. Yes. Sarah Gottfried, you know, who's an OBGYN and, and functional medicine doctor, she, she basically says that erectile dysfunction um, is insulin resistance and atherosclerosis of the penile artery until proven otherwise. And if you have any element of erectile dysfunction, um, you should be getting a full nuanced cardiometabolic workup Ideally with a functional medicine doctor who's gonna look, you know, dig deeper, or like a naturopathic doctor, someone who's thinking more like metabolically and holistically, get that deep workup because that little bit of difficulty maintaining or getting an erection might actually be the first warning sign of like the heart attack, stroke, cancer, fatty liver disease, et cetera, that's gonna come down the road. Um you know, and then of
0: course, go ahead. I agree. I agree completely that my mentor taught me that way back in the nineties. He was like, if you encounter a man with erectile dysfunction, that is a cardiovascular accident waiting to happen. Period. Don't, Sit on it, you know. And I will tell you, in my dating life, I ran into a lot of men who had, and I, I probably make myself sound like a floozy, but it was an issue for men in their thirties. It was an issue for men in their forties. It was an issue, and what I was shocked about was it, it was an issue, which makes sense to me now that I understand uh, what you know, high oxidative exercise can do to a person, because that's a whole other topic of like oxidating yourself via your marathons and your triathlons into metabolic syndrome, you know, like that's a real thing. I saw that a lot on labs, but these men would be very, you know, quote unquote, physically fit, but be suffering with erectile dysfunction and and stress plays a role in all that too. But I'm like, yo, you got to get this checked because this is not normal and it is not a good sign. And it's not shaming anyone. It's just, it really, for all you ladies listening right now, if your husband is dealing with this, this is a early signal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, We talked about the testosterone and like the fat being like a big ovary um, (laughs) earlier, but testosterone is such a big part of like sexual desire and arousal, like in both men and women. Mm And so, and men with type two diabetes, like 50% of them have a testosterone deficiency, probably, probably more, you know, and it's like, this is something we can totally impact. And I just, I just don't think the average man or woman is who's walking around with a beer or. Eating the hamburger bun or the hot dog bun or you know the crackers or the pasta—they're just. I just don't think people are thinking like, oh, this beer, this stuff—it's—it's going to create visceral fat, which is going to turn my testosterone to estrogen, which is going to make me have problems with sexual function, desire, fertility, all these things. But we need to start making those links, Um, and because it's—it's ultra motivating. I actually feel like sexual health, and arousal, libido desire, lubrication, all these things, erection, like it's such an amazing gateway to metabolic health because people really care about it. People really, really, really care about it. And what's so interesting is that like people will slather like testosterone all over their body, but like, it's like resistance training can hugely increase your testosterone sleeping more can increase your testosterone of course eating a whole foods diet and avoiding their fine processed grains and sugar can increase your testosterone so it's like there's all these other things we can do um and then of course just losing a small amount of weight in men can really increase testosterone levels so um really think about it holistically and then the funny thing about of course viagra which is one of the most like prescribed medications in the world um it's a, of course, it it increases nitric oxide levels in the body, which are being hurt by insulin resistance. So it's such a band-aid and just anyone listening, like it's like before, maybe not before you get that Viagra prescription, you know, it's like you do you, but like, if you're getting it, just know that there are much more natural ways to improve nitric oxide function in the body that also could be hugely impactful in reducing pain and suffering from so many other conditions down the road and a, like a shorter, a shorter life. So, um, you know, get to the root cause, uh, eventually. It's
0: critical because if you are what I saw again, clinically, and it's, it's weird. Cause I've asked so many doctors who did a lot of TRT therapy and I did a lot of it. Like I inherited my mentor's practice and he had a whole lot of dudes getting, and so my I was doing all regenerative injection therapy, but you can't get somebody to regenerate their joints if their testosterone is low. So they have to be in a somewhat anabolic state and they have to be metabolically sound. Otherwise they won't heal. It's not ethical to do. So one of my early concerns with patients was always to men and women was to assess where their testosterone levels were so that we knew that the stem cells or the PRP or whatever pro therapy would take, right? And what I saw, and when I consult my colleagues who do a lot of TRT therapy, testosterone replacement therapy, they're telling me they're not seeing a need for Remedex or estrogen in- inhibition at all, whereas I was seeing it all the time. If someone's rocking, so I mean, it's like a chicken and egg, and I've done a whole podcast on this a whole episode, but if they're rocking a belly and they're drinking the beer and they're eating the refined carbs and they start shooting the testosterone, they are going to aromatase into estrogen and now their estrogen is gonna go through the roof. And clinically what you end up with is somebody who is a grumpy bitch. Like I don't have a better way of saying it. They get bitchy and grumpy. They get apathetic. They don't want to do anything. And so you might, they might initially get a little bit of a jazz out of it the first 90 days or so, but then they're going to bonk. And so they have to strength train and they have to address their diet and they have to do the thing, you know, the sunlight, sun your genitals, cold plunge, do all sleep, please sleep everybody. Um, Without those intact, we end up with a more risky cardiovascular picture because we're driving it with the testosterone replacement therapy. So it's not a panacea. In fact, it can really make a big mess of things. But something else my mentor taught me is if their testosterone's low, they will develop type 2 diabetes at some point. Like they might as well have one foot in the grave. So if you're seeing a man with low T, and I was seeing this in 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, like really young dudes with low T, and it was like chicken and egg, right? So we had to address the they were rocking metabolic syndrome too, to some degree, but we had to address the pink elephant in the room because shooting them up with tea was not the solution. But if we didn't give them the tea, the metabolic syndrome would get worse. So this is, I implore everyone listening, men, if you're taking replacement therapy, like get your shit together because this is not a joke. Like this is the only way it works. But when you do do all the things, it's, Amazing. Testosterone replacement therapy. I take it. It is such a wonderful tool for pain, chronic pain. Oh my goodness. Like it, it's, it's all, and I don't do it all the time. I cycle it, but it is a game changer and it is a game changer for men. And I think absolutely necessary in our current xenoestrogen. Landscape, which is a whole other conversation. I mean, we're just being poisoned into metabolic syndrome. So a lot of this, we.
1: I'm sorry, I haven't even mentioned (laughs) that. I mean, it's so like just, just, just putting it like we talked about a lot of the root cause reasons of like why testosterone might be going down. But one of the biggest ones, of course, being our environmental toxins that are directly impairing our sperm function, mitochondrial function, all these things. It's a massive, massive contributor to this and all the plastics that are xenoestrogens and plastics and other chemicals that are totally disrupting our hormonal milieu. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that I, I find that women women tend to be more interested in like the whole like field of non-toxic living. And it, certainly there are definitely some men who are who are into it, but like I don't think men realize that, like all the different these personal care products, you know, the, the Old Spice deodorant and the box, the Axe body spray and body wash, and the scented, you know, shampoos and lotions, and the unfiltered water and the non-organic food, and eating things out of plastic containers and plastic water bottles. It's like this could literally be having a really big fat, uh, impact on your sexual health, and um, clean it all up, just get rid of all the chemicals you can in food storage, food preparation, personal care products, you know, linens, household products, um, you know, filter the air, filter the water, etc. all the things. It, it really, I think does make a difference. I think 20 years from now, we're going to like be talking about this like we were so crazy in this era right now, but it's just not totally mainstream yet. And it's really hard to say how much of a percentage of the factor is the environmental toxins, but my, my I suspect it is very, very high. Where, where do you fall on, on that?
0: Oh, it's huge. I mean, we're swimming in a toxic soup and then you have to, I was trying to explain this to my husband. You have to consider exposure levels throughout life too. So You know, he grew up on a farm, but in this farming community in the 90s, they quit allowing fields to burn each year. They would burn the fields and then replant them, but they quit doing that. So now it's heavy pesticide and herbicide use. So, you know, I, it's like, I say this because, so he's way more insulin resistant than I am. And he's in great shape. He's been doing physical labor his whole life. He's eaten decently well. I mean, if we were to compare our whole life and our whole dietary habits up until now, I should be the one who's in worse shape, right? But I say this because these are the cards we're dealt. Like you were born to a metabolically dysfunctional mom, you were a big baby, you know, you have your own set of cards. And so as we hit our middle age, we have to just sort of accept where we're at, keep tabs on it and then do everything in our power. So, you know, I'll be eating carbs and he wants to eat a bunch. And I'm like, we don't have the same response. <laughs> this is not, you know, we got in a huge fight over this vat of hummus he brought home and it was made out of canola oil. And I was like, you can't eat that. I can, I'm not going to eat that, but you can't eat that. Like you are sitting in a more precarious situation than I am metabolically. And he was so upset. And I'm like, well, read the freaking food labels, dude. Like we wouldn't have to be having a fight if you just turned it around and put your glasses on. <laughs> You're at the grocery store, but you're, I say this because you're right. Men don't want to be bothered with it and they need to be bothered with it because clinically, also what I saw, and I did a, like I said, I did a whole podcast episode about this. I clinically would see that erectile dysfunction was a late stage symptom of low testosterone. They did not, they did not lose their erections first. They most often lose their erections last. So I'll see like, the shin, the hair on the fronts of the shin will start to disappear and they will start to have, uh, really, if they're active, that's who I treated most of the time, we're active folks, they would start to get injuries that wouldn't heal and they'd be more prone to injuries. And that was a cardinal symptom for me. I'm like, I got to go back on a little bit of testosterone because I keep you know, ripping things that shouldn't be ripping. <laughs> and then they don't heal well and they don't heal quickly. Stamina, mood, affect, really affect goes down in men. They just sort of get apathetic. And I think that comes with metabolic syndrome. You know, your brain shrinks when you're swimming in insulin. So you start to get this apathy. And then next thing you know, you're like behind the cart and the horses, like way back there and it's hard to catch up. And so to keep it simple, you none of the hormone replacement therapy or the thyroid replacement or the adrenal support, like that's all well and good, but none of that works if the lifestyle components are not totally dialed in. So everything you said and then clean up the, household milieu, like get the garbage out. And the world doesn't make it that easy. They make it hard to figure out what's in your products. And then companies that are clean get bought out by bigger companies and they start to Oh yeah. You know I
1: see that a lot.
0: Yeah. It's it sucks. And it's I've been noticed I've been aware of this since my mom worked for Aveda when I was gosh, I don't know, like in eighth grade. And so I've been aware of toxins in my beauty supplies since then. And I watched them get bought out by, I think, Estee Lauder and like everything changed. And anyway, long story short, we just have to be diligent. It's just the world we live in. And it's okay because we want our boners to be, you know, men want their boners and women want their clitorises working. Yep. (laughs) That's a happy life.
1: Life is better in that world. (laughs) And it's possible. It's possible. You know, it's, 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 possible probably in the course of a few months for most people, right? Like it's like it's and it's so simple. Like we've been so gaslit to think this is all so complex. You know, it's for most of us and of course this is like generalities but for most of us it's like the simple basics are going to get us most of the way there. The eating the real food uh that's unprocessed um honestly like it's and it's there's so many different dietary patterns but no matter what your dietary pattern is, whether it's more plant-based, more meat-based, it's like, I think getting to the just like whole on processed lower glycemic foods, it's like, that's going to get you so far of the way there. So it's like making the hummus from chickpeas and olive oil and garlic rather than the non-organic hummus from pesticide covered chickpeas with canola oil with, you know, <laughs> all this extra stuff. It's like it, every little bit makes a big difference. Um, Cause ultimately like, you know, yeah, we're trying to, free up our cells to do their best work. So not just like barraging them with constant excess biochemical stressors and oxidative stressors, um, you know, moving more, get the 10,000 steps today, live heavy weights, get enough sleep, at least seven to eight hours minimum, you know, and getting the sunlight in the morning, getting rid of the blue light at night, r- avoiding the synthetic toxins, um, you know, managing stress, making sure you're not like being exposed to too much of the fear mongering, fear induced media. That's just like literally meant to create inflammation and cortisol spikes in our bodies, like avoid it, like just basics, simple. Um, and you know, life transforms. I think we get demotivated in part because we're confused because there's so many different voices and pathways. And I really am a proponent of like keeping it simple, you know, food, sleep, movement, stress management, avoid toxins, avoid toxic light, ideally get into sort of like thermal extremes, cold and hot, but that's kind of icing on the cake. And it's like, you know, those things will get you very, 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 very far. So don't, don't let yourself be discouraged because you don't think you can get the right answer. Just focus on the basics is, is after many years in this holistic field, I've become more sort of, I think, open-minded to like, really just focus on the basics. There's a lot of fine tuning you can do, of course. I mean, I run a continuous glucose monitoring company and I'm so obsessed with individualized aspects, like every food affects people differently, but I'm really talking about like the, the foundation of the iceberg that we need to, to get right. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I would, what I would leave people with is just like, get the basics right.
0: Amen. I love it. I, that's a thousand percent agree. That's it. It's, you can't, none of the other fancy stuff works if you don't have the foundation and it's gotta be all the things you said. You can't, that's the one thing I've learned from my CGM is I could be doing everything right. If I'm stressed out of my mind, my blood sugar is all over the place. So there's no one piece of this that we get a skimp on. And uh, really, you know, folks on social media wanna split hairs over sweeteners and this and that. And I'm like, oh, for f's sake, like just- Focus on the basics and take really good care of your body. And let's not worry about all those little details, you know? It'll, think things will fall into place. Well, this is so lovely and helpful. I hope it's helpful for the audience as well, because it's not a topic that gets discussed. It's a little taboo. <laughs> um, so where can folks find you? Because like you said, you, this, the company is Levels and you're also on social media. So tell them all the places. Yes,
1: yes. So, um for levels, you can find us at levelshealth.com and really amazing resource, levelshealth.com slash blog is our editorial site called Metabolic Insights, which is in- incredibly high quality source of metabolic health information, research based from like deep research articles and research reviews to like very practical stuff, like what to buy at Costco that's metabolically healthy. There's hundreds and hundreds of blog posts. Um, and so really recommend that resource. Um, we're at levels on Instagram and Twitter, a lot of educational resources there. Um, and then I'm at Dr. Casey's kitchen, Dr. Casey's kitchen on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and yeah, those are the best places to find me. Awesome. I will make sure to link it all up in the show notes. And I just adore you, lady.
0: Thank you so much for coming on here. This was so fun. And I wish we had video footage for our last conversation too, because it was epic, but I'll figure out a way to get some share, some of it shared. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, this is so great. Thank you so much, Dr. Tina. I'm just so grateful for all the work that you're doing. And you've inspired me literally for years to be bolder and braver in this space. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything you do. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to The Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at drtina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and Dr. Tina 2 as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.
2: Do you suffer from IBS or other digestive issues? Are you looking for a new podcast to listen to? From the producer of The Dr. Tina Show comes the all-new health and nutrition podcast, Digest This, hosted by Bethany Ugarty. You may know Bethany as the face of the popular Instagram page, Lil Sipper, Or you may have even read her book. Now you can find her wherever you get your podcasts. On Digest This, Bethany examines topics such as gut health, nutrition, the food industry, and highlights specific ingredients that can be beneficial or harmful to your gut health. She also explores non-toxic options in beauty, home, and cooking essentials. If it has to do with your health, Digest This is talking about it. Each episode features an interview with health experts, doctors, and wellness advocates, and delivers you information that is... Well, easy to digest. Bethany also delivers a weekly segment every episode called Bite of Knowledge, where she highlights an ingredient commonly used in food, skin care, household cleaning, you name it, and gives you the lowdown on the benefits or dangers that ingredient might have in your everyday life. From Botox, potassium, olive oil, and magnesium, all the way to those ingredients you can barely pronounce on the back of your cereal boxes, Bethany has you covered. There's a reason why it debuted at number two on Apple Podcast Nutrition Charts. Check out Digest This on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Monday and Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resonant Media.